Episode 9, Mutilation. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a peacekeeper on overseas deployment. Based on true and factual accounts, some details were changed due to operational security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. Each and every one of us have powerful memories of some given day where some type of memorable event occurred, whether it was good, bad or indifferent. I think for most people, those snippets of memories are in the good category, but for me, the following was the opposite. This is a bad day memory. I'll never forget every single aspect of this event, beginning from remembering just how hot that night had been and how I was having the usual struggles trying to sleep. No different to counting sheep, the fan above my head turned so slowly that I counted the revolutions. But trying to get to sleep was no different to the previous 58 nights as I was forever cursing the lack of air conditioning. Now into my third peacekeeping mission, I knew the first few months of any deployment were difficult to sleep. I would continue to be on edge as I adapted to all aspects of the conditions within the mission, including my surrounds. I found I would naturally tune into the distant sound of commotion occurring somewhere out in the streets, mixed up with the hum of the diesel generator, which kept the fan turning. I'd been housed on the top floor of a two-storey timber home, and I wasn't too keen with this arrangement, but should my location be compromised, living upstairs provided very few escape routes. It was no wonder I rarely slept. So the events of this night began when the timber boards on the deck in front of my room creaked and I immediately reached under my pillow for the Glock as I slid out of the bed and knelt on the ground. I quickly retrieved one of the magazines from under the mattress and pushed it up into the firearm. I racked it hard and fast to deliberately transmit that loud, distinctive metallic sound of actioning a firearm and it had the desired effect as whoever had been slowly approaching my room stopped walking. Sir, sir, came a panicked voice from near my door. But I knew that voice. It was Ali, one of the local officers I'd been training. What's up, Ali? I called out. Sir, help Ali, fit. I knew fit was Ali's bastardised way of saying the English word fight. Meet me at my car, Ali, I replied to him. I honestly cursed the way my life had become as I went through the usual routine of donning my uniform and equipment. The excitement to this role had long worn off and it was seriously grinding me down. I had managed to reduce my shifts from 16 odd hours each day to around 10 or 12, but it was the constant seven days a week for the past two months that was burning me out. The adrenaline dumps that seemed to sustain you were gone and I longed for a break from the grind. Being called out for unknown jobs at this time of the night also forced me to think on a different level. I wasn't going anywhere into this night without being fully tooled up, so I grabbed an additional pack of capsicum spray, along with what we referred to as my go bag. It was a small backpack that contained my diplomatic passport, a couple of food ration packs, water, a small amount of extra specialised equipment, some US dollars, and a couple of other small items which I probably shouldn't mention. Should whatever it was that we were supposedly attending go seriously south, I would have my go bag to rely on should I need to bolt. Ali was already in the passenger seat of my SUV when I got downstairs and I wasn't surprised to notice his typical unpreparedness. 
He had his police shirt on, which he rarely bothered to do any of the buttons up, a pair of his own well-worn filthy shorts, and that was it. Nothing else. No equipment, not even any footwear, zip. But that was Arlie, as he was a local, and this was his part of our strange world. Even though Ali had been in the local police force for nearly two years, I mentally referred to him as a trainee. I would never say that to his face, as he would consider it demeaning, but sadly, Ali and all of his colleagues needed training. On a personal level, I also had a small soft spot for him, as he certainly displayed the most drive and promise, but he was still just a part of the bigger problem. Part of our reason for being in mission was to mentor and train the Indigenous National Police Force, as they were far from competent. I was also very much aware Ali had seemingly attached himself to me and he showed a lot of promise and keenness to learn, which I respected. But regardless of how much promise he did show, I was also aware he had one big downfall which I had to stamp out of him and nearly all of his colleagues. Open and endemic corruption. As the four-wheel drive bounced its way through the inky black night, Ali told me how he had been woken by a villager who had run from his village some 30 minutes away. He told Ali one of the villagers had been running amok, being violent to others, and it would appear that this individual was known to Ali. From the limited conversation I could have with him due to the difficulties of the language, it seemed Ali didn't bother reacting to this report until a second villager appeared with a follow-up message he may have killed someone. That's when Ali called upon me. Judging from the way Ali described this individual, clearly there was some form of mental health issues to be considered. Apparently he called himself something like Gupta, which was a vague reference to being an angelic being. But that wasn't the weird bit. The odd bit was how Ali described him to me. Apparently Gupta would shave the entire right side of his head and let the left side fully grow. I suppose it doesn't sound that bad. But one side of your head with long hair, the other side bald. But it was also the fact that he said that he did the same to his face, but in the opposite, which was weird. So picture this if you can. He was bald on the right side of his head, yet had full hair on the right side of his face, including one full eyebrow and half a moustache and beard. He was also more than likely to be naked and was perpetually affected by a toxic wine and a drug made from the local plants. Oh, and uh, apparently he always carried a spear, Ali added. So after 30 or so minutes of bouncing around in the SUV, we arrived in the village. The exact location of Gupta's house was easy enough to find as the local villagers had gathered around the outside of the house. Some of them had wooden fire torches blazing brightly in the night which managed to dispel some of the darkness. The dancing flames flickered on the side of a mud-formed house and highlighted the thatch roof which was very typical in these outlying villages. Late into the night and in a very isolated location that I had never previously been, I knew this was one of those times you needed to have your wits about you, to be switched on and fully aware of what could be lurking and what could be a potential threat. The call to attend here appeared legitimate, but without a translator, I would need to change roles and allow Ali to do the talking and make the inquiries. My biggest concern was I had no radio communications out here and I would have to rely on my EPIRB. Just to explain, an EPIRB is a device that connects you to a set base via the satellites. They are a fantastic piece of equipment and are typically used at sea should you fall overboard or if your boat goes down. If I needed to hit that button, 
it would ping my location to headquarters and they would immediately dispatch back up to me in a helicopter. That all sounds great, but in my case, that response time would be nearly two hours. Ali conversed with some of the locals before pushing his way through the crowd to the back of the group. He followed him to an older male sitting against the base of a tree, several of the villagers surrounding him. He was holding a large leaf similar to a palm leaf against his naked abdomen and Ali bent down and pulled it away. There was a large, neat, easily 12 inches long slash horizontally across his stomach and it opened up with the pressure of the leaf being removed. Amazingly, Ali had a look and then pinched it close with his fingers before pushing the leaf back against it and barking some sort of command for someone to hold it back in place. Ali didn't need to explain what had obviously occurred to the old fella, but in broken English and with a lot of hand gesticulations, I deciphered that Gupta had obviously been a pain in the ass for most of the day and well into the night. He had been heavily affected by his vices, which initially didn't sound all that different to a lot of other blokes throughout the world on any other given night until it came to light that he was the one who had slashed open the elder with his spear. I wasn't too concerned with the condition of the elder, as I knew the villagers would care for him with their traditional methods. It was the other two things that concerned me the most. Where was Gupta, and where was his wife? No one seemed to know the location of either, and the unpredictability of Gupta put me on edge. What changed it up even more was no one had entered the house as they feared what they might find and Ali had been told that Gupta had fled the village. I had to consider the possibility of Gupta charging unknowingly behind me out of the dark of the forest that surrounded us, a long, lethal spear in his hand, which I'd seen firsthand what he could do. While I respected the way Ali had taken control and showed confidence and leadership, apart from his penchant for corruption, he also had one other fault. He was impetuous, and I had to pull firmly on his arm to stop him from storming unarmed and unplanned into the house in his unbuttoned shirt and shorts. I motioned to him to slow down and for us to consider a calm and methodical approach to entering the house. Neither of us knew what or who was lying within. I understood and accepted that the National Police had been trained differently to myself and they operated on a very different level. I also respected that this was a country different to my own and they utilised different techniques, methodologies, to my own training, but as times change, they needed to change with it. For years, their training had been incredibly basic and limited, and I'd long since learnt their response and reaction to dangerous incidents was far from sensible. One of my personal objectives was to change their mindset, for them to consider safety first, as they had a tendency to react too quickly and without much thought. I wanted to instill calm, rational thinking, along with other solid policing practices, not taking money being one of them. I pulled Ali aside and I detailed my plan. As we had no idea what we could be walking into, I would go in first as I was armed and I instructed him to go to the rear and quietly climb through a window if he could find no door. So Ali set off around the rear and I approached the front of the house. The first thing that perturbed me was I had no idea what to expect inside. The second thing was the villagers moved further back from the house as I neared the front door. I knew they were a fairly superstitious bunch, but did they know something I didn't? Had Ali briefed me with everything I needed to know? Had I understood him correctly? The further the villagers moved away with their torches, 
the darker the surrounds became, and I stopped to the side of the front door where I could see it was absolutely pitch black inside. I was mindful of not exposing myself by standing in the front of the opening, particularly as the door had been left wide open. I pulled the Glock out, along with my torch, which I placed underneath the barrel to illuminate where the rounds may need to go. As soon as I turned the torch on, I stepped into the house. There are very specific techniques employed to enter a house, particularly when you have very little idea what may be inside. I had been heavily trained to do the opposite of what you would typically see in a movie where the actor enters upright, arms outstretched, firearm pushed out in front. This method is clunky and it carries far too many risks, so I'll let you in on one of a number of very specific techniques. I chose one of the five systems I've been trained in, which has six key elements happening in two very, very quick stages. The first stage of three is speed. Be quick through the doorway and into a protected position as your body creates an outline should you be too slow. Second, enter in a balanced crouch position and keep your firearm, and in this case torch, close. No more than six inches away from your chest, pointed forwards and in a horizontal position should it need to be quickly discharged. Third, take up a position literally straight around the corner you've just entered and stay low so you present a smaller target and can quickly, easily exit again should it be required. The second stage, AFA, is immediately after entry. It stands for adaption, familiarisation and advantage. Quickly adapt to the surrounds, in this case the lack of light, familiarise yourself with your space and move to take the upper hand and obtain an advantage. I stepped into what would have been the main room of the house and took up a low position with the back of me touching the inside wall next to the door. The bright light of my torch bounced off the end wall and then illuminated the insides. I immediately took in that there were three entries to this main room, all open and exposed, and it informed me this was only a three-room house. There was a closed door at the end of the room to the left, which I could safely assume exited to the rear of the house. Two open doorways to my right and nothing to my immediate left except for a boarded up window. As for the room itself, there was next to nothing within it, except for a body on the floor, right smack bang in the middle. Positioned on its back, I didn't immediately care who it was lying there, I just needed to eliminate it as a threat. A quick glance and a small lowering of the torch told me it was female. She was totally naked, clearly dead, and even though it was a dirt floor, surrounded by an enormous amount of blood. First objective, clear the room to the right. Attack it and slice it like a pie. I stood further up into a slightly more comfortable position and moved to the right but one step away from the door to the room. I raised the Glock up to just below my chin, ensuring it didn't interrupt my sight and started to move crab-like to my left, making the torchlight shine into each corner of the room. Reaching the extreme left of the door, I made the quick one-step entry into the room and visually cleared it as empty. I took two quiet and controlled backward steps and turreted to my left. The firearm came around, as did the torchlight, and shone directly into the clean-shaven left side face of a male. I hadn't heard Ali enter into the main room from the rear of the house, and he was staring wide-eyed down at the female. I know Ali would have seen some very nasty deaths in his past two years, such was the nature of this place and its civil unrest, 
but the look on his face told a whole nother story. He didn't even acknowledge me or the bright light shining in his face. He just stared downwards. I followed his gaze and looked down at the female. I'd seen some nasty shit in my time, but what I saw was incomprehensible. Her eyes were fully open and staring directly ahead, upwards to the ceiling. Like the rest of the villagers, she was very dark-skinned and her face and tightly curled shoulder-length jet black hair was perfect. Her mouth was ever so slightly open and it appeared as if she'd had the brightest of bright red lipsticks on, but I knew that wasn't the case. But that's where her beauty stopped, as from her chin down, her body had been desecrated. Every limb and main section of her had multiple deep, long slashes. He had obviously tried to remove her head, as her neck was cut halfway through, and I'm going to guess the only reason it hadn't been severed was it had been stopped by the spine. Her right breast was literally the only part of her he had left untouched, but her large left breast had been sliced through from the middle of her chest and had hung lopsided off to her side. He had stabbed and slashed her so deeply throughout that every one of the wounds were gaping open, the muscle and yellow fat contained within contrasted against the dark colour of her skin. Some of the wounds were so deep and wide, internal organs had been exposed, and in some cases appeared ruptured, which contributed to that peculiar smell associated with death. I found myself looking back at her large and wide open eyes as she just stared into what I can only say was a peculiar, disinterested way to the ceiling above her. In the semi-darkness to my right, I caught a flash of movement in my peripheral vision, and I spun in that direction, this time pushing the Glock and torch out in front. The flash went through the rear door to the outside, but I caught enough of it to know it was Gupta, spear in his left hand. Ali had obviously not checked the end room when he came in through the back entrance, and Gupta had been in there the entire time. Bare feet or not, Ali was fleet-footed and got through the back door ahead of me, just as we heard the villagers scream. Gupta ran straight past a lot of them to the tree where the elder was still sitting, and the rest of the villagers ran, leading the elder by himself. Gupta turned, lifted the spear, and levelled it directly at Ali and I. Ali was stupidly a couple of steps ahead of me, and way too close to Gupta and the tip of that spear. I had intentionally stayed back, as there was no way I was going to give Gupta a chance to run me through with that spear, and I pointed the Glock straight at him, finger on trigger. There the pair of them stood silently, in the dark, briefly weighing each other up. What happened next was unexpected and totally caught me out by surprise. Ali screamed out a dozen or so words and without one moment of hesitation, Gupta threw the spear to the ground. Ali kicked him horribly to his knee and Gupta dropped hard. I cuffed him to the obvious joy of the villagers. I never did find out exactly what it was Ali called out to Gupta to get him to comply, but Ali announced himself that day and I give him full credit for the arrest, strange or not. However, I did add to my list of things I needed to achieve. Apart from stamping out corruption and teaching them to slow down and take time to evaluate, we needed to have a better look at proper arrest techniques. Oh, and another one. Make sure you check and clear every damn room before you walk past.
If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.herrickwelsh. Thank you.